Hey there everyone and welcome back to The Longest Night. We are a Game of Thrones show on the Podbreed network and as you all know, we work closely with our friends at the Narth subreddit as well. My name's Rob and I've seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. And my name is Lizzie and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. If you want to, you can find us on Twitter. We are at LongestNightGOT. That is at LongestNightGOT. And our Etsy store can be found under the same name as well. Our title music was provided by friend of the podcast, Edward Thomas. You can find all of his available music in the description. Uh, all right, let's use what we have. <laughs> This week, we are going to be discussing Season 6, Episode 6 of Game of Thrones, entitled Blood of My Blood. It was written by Brian Cogman and directed by Jack Bender. It was first broadcast on the 29th of May, 2016, to an audience of 6.71 million people. The Memorial Day weekend curse strikes again. <laughs> for the final time for the final time in Game of Thrones history. Yes, this was the last episode to air on Memorial Day weekend. What do you make of it? What do you make of Blood of My Blood actually? It's a solid mid-season episode. It's one of those where I feel like they get to this point in seasons where they feel they need to set up the ending and this is that episode. Mhm. It's where okay, all the wheels are in motion now. We know where things are going. But it does mean that you have a say, a somewhat more subdued episode than the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Were. But yeah, not a bad episode at all. No, I think that this is a good one. This has actually gone slightly up uh, yeah, yeah. in my okay. estimations. Uh, I always sort of had this pegged as a bit of a, a good episode, but it kind of deflated the atmosphere after the door because... Well, yeah. and Book of the Stranger yeah. too, because Book of the Stranger and The Door are two right, really massive episodes. Um, and this one is always kind of seen as like the lesser of the middle three of the season. And it, it is, but I don't mm. think it is by much. Like if you go on this episode's IMDb page uh, rating, it's it's rate. I mean, I don't really trust IMDb ratings beyond like well, no. how, how well. angry or how enthusiastic are the fans right now. And this episode has yeah. kind of a lukewarm rating for Game of Thrones and... I don't really agree with that. I find this to be like, you know, pretty mid-tier Game of Thrones episode, which is pretty solid. I think it's just above par. Um, tight, uh, decisive, pretty thematically consistent across most of the locations. Contains a lot of interesting yeah, points absolutely. of no return. Good intrigue. Yeah. Cool reintroductions mm-hmm. of a couple of characters. Yeah, I think there's a yep. lot to get out of this episode, I think, if you're a, a fan of the show. The last letter John wrote me said you'd been lost beyond the wall. I led a ranging party deep into the north to find White Walkers. They found us. The White Walker stabbed me in the gut with a sword of ice. Left me there to die, to churn. His children found me. We stopped the Walker's magic from taking hold. How? The same way they made the Walkers in the first place. You saw it yourself. Dragon glass. Beyond the Wall, Bran and Mira continue to escape from the Army of the Dead and the Three-Eyed Raven's Cave, 
While still experiencing visions, Bran sees images of Jaime Lannister murdering the Mad King, the Hardhome Massacre, uh, Ned Stark's beheading, and loads of other incidents from uh, Westeros history. Uh, when Mira can drag Bran no further, allowing the Whites to catch up with them, an anonymous horse rider rescues both of them and takes them to safety. Resting at a campfire, the anonymous rider reveals himself to be... Benjen Stark! And Benjen explains hey. that he was stabbed and left for dead by a White Walker years ago, only to be rescued by the Children of the Forest. Uh, question just to open this, I guess. Um, when did it click that it was Benjen for you? Did, did you have a little hint that it may have been him before he revealed himself? No, it didn't click. Because you I don't know if you remember a couple of seasons ago, I had a theory that one of the White Walkers was Benjen. Mm-hmm. So I assumed he was long dead. Ah. But yeah, I'm I'm on board with that. <laughs> this is an example of season six doing something that it has done up to this point and continues to do after this point, which is taking tentative book theories and then just going with them. Like it, it's like because yeah. it, so basically in the book, um, Sam and Gilly, um, they in, when they're traveling south to the wall. Uh, so in season three for us. When they're traveling south to the wall, uh, they come across a person called Cold Hands, who is a friendly guy who escorts them to the wall, where they bump into Bran and Hodor and like, that sort of thing. But they they cut mm. him out of the show, and so for for a long time, people have thought that this Cold Hands person in the books um, might be Uncle Benjamin, and that question is as of yet unanswered. Whereas the show right. can just go, uh, yeah, fine, it's Benjamin, whatever. <laughs> Um, and yeah yeah yeah, they've got a license to do that because it's the tv show um and it's a a pretty cool introduction and a a nice appropriate way to bring him back in rescuing a rescuing a stark um what are your main conclusions from this bit though beyond the wall with bran and mira and benjen my main conclusion i think is that bran is supposed to be the next three-eyed raven and if he's you know if he doesn't become that in a short time then all hell is going to break loose. Yeah, basically, Bran needs to be ready for something. Like, the the White Walkers yes. are going to try and head south, and so Benjamin implies that he's going to be... He's going to have to be ready for it, and he's mm. going to have to be prepared. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the visions. Um, not... Yes, I'm not, sure Not do. too much, but just, mm-hmm. just, a, just a little bit. I might have to put my hand on your shoulder... A little bit, as we as we did. It's no longer questions answered at a later date. It's the hands on the shoulder. Um, the visions are great. I think that it's interesting to I see agree. Bran being the only in-universe Game of Thrones character to see footage from the show that he's in, which is kind of cool. Um, but yeah. I suppose the big one that really got a lot of people's attention in the aftermath of the episode and perfectly justified is uh, the sight of Aerys, the Mad King Targaryen. Yeah. In his final moments, uh, there's three or four crucial shots from that scene. There's one that's so fast that you, that you do miss it. You may have to go to... Um, when the season is over, you may have to go to some articles that did a breakdown of Brand's visions, uh, those clickbaity yeah, like, yeah. Brand's visions explained kind of thing. But there's four <laughs> shots in particular. There's one of Ares shouting, burn them all. There's one yep. of Jamie stabbing him in the back. There's one of the yep. shadow of Jamie stabbing him in the back. And then there's a fourth one that is there for less than a split second, and it's Jamie sat on the Iron Throne afterwards. Um, ah. 
and Bran is just being shown this because it's a quite an important event in uh, in Westeros history. And I also think as well, Bran has quite a close. It's it's strange to think, but Bran's where Bran is now is all Jamie's fault, and so I think yeah, that's there's true. a reason why he's been shown that, which is just that you know Jamie may not be all that you believe him to be because he shoved you out the window. He was also a person who was capable of making a great sacrifice for himself in order to save thousands of people. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I do like the visions a lot. Was there anything that you spotted or like took your took your eye a little bit? Did you go back through and pause it, or did you just kind of let it play out as it's intended? I did go back and pause it, but I'm I'm actually more curious to know what you think of Ares's appearance, like his his actual appearance, because okay, I do occasionally try and be, read the little bits of trivia for an episode on IMDb and noticed there was a couple of comments about his appearance in the flashbacks not quite matching previous descriptions of him. You know, being um, the one thing I picked up, being so paranoid that he wouldn't let any blades near him. So his hair, beard and fingernails were extremely long by the time he was killed. But mm. in the in the actual shots, he's like clean shaven. He looks like Balon Greyjoy. Yeah, instead of uh, Mr. Burns at the end of um, <laughs> Springfield, yes, or how in I the casino of, episode. Uh, gambling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the tissue boxes on his feet. <laughs> Free, uh, J- Jamie walking towards him with the sword. Freemasons run the country. Um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh god, I'm gonna have to yeah. leave another link to another Simpsons clip in the description just so people get that. But. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It's The Simpsons. People have seen it. Come on. Yes, yeah, probably. Yeah, just making sure we don't alienate at least two people who may not have seen that very specific episode. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's another podcast there. Yeah, uh, maybe maybe for the future. Um, yeah, I think it's just one of those where maybe the show have kind of taken liberties a bit because I'm not 100% sure in the show if it's ever described that way, the Mad King being okay. so... Paranoid. I think I'm sure a couple of people, like, well, clearly a few, a few people have picked up on this, uh, where he was probably a lot more haggard and thinner at the point yeah, of his, yeah. uh, at the point of the end of his rule, and that's why he was looking a bit, you know. But in the show, maybe it's just because it was never really mentioned what he looked like, and so they can just sort of have their own version of him. I think I would have preferred a slightly haggard. Um, King Eris Targaryen. I think. Oh yeah, yeah. I would have loved that. There's a couple of things as well, um, which makes me think that like it's maybe part of a memory rather than like the real thing. Because I know that Jaime didn't just kill um, the Mad King; he killed the Pyromancer as well. But the Pyromancer is nowhere to be found. Um, so maybe True. it's just little bits of the memory or like fragments or something like that. But then I suppose we do see. Maybe it's because it's more recent, we do see, uh, or just because the show has actual footage for it, we do see the full version of the Hardhome Massacre and Ned's death and stuff like that. But I suppose the 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 shots of in-show events that we've seen already, they're just using that footage because it's, it's supposed to be... I don't think it, that's what's literally going through Bran's head. I think it's just that th- this is the event that Bran is seeing and we know what it looks like. So we'll just show you what yeah. we already have. I mean, yeah. given the like, given the events in King's Landing at the moment, it feels a bit like a premonition. Okay. I, I don't know if I can really elaborate on that, but, you know, because it seems like 
it see well to me it feels a bit like King's Landing is being taken over by the High Sparrow and we'll get to that discussion later on. But yeah, I wonder if there's something in that. Okay. Um ju- what, is just this, with regards uh, to like the High Sparrow potentially going a bit insane, like the Mad King did, or something else? Um, I mean maybe more like Jamie realizing or somebody else realizing that they have to um take power by force in order to stop um a kind of fanaticism okay yeah okay i love that that's cool i saw it with my own eyes on our way down to castle black he drove a dagger into the walker's heart he risked his own life to save mine more than once he's a greater warrior than either of you will ever be your way down to castle black Where did he kill a White Walker? Where are you from? How'd you come to meet my son? Sam, Gilly and Little Sam arrive at the Tarly family seat of Horn Hill. And Sam warns Gilly not to mention that she is a wildling due to his father Randall's hatred of wildlings. At dinner, Randall insults Sam a lot, uh, causing Gilly to defend him. Uh, During her defence, she accidentally reveals her wildling status, and disgusted by this, Randall tells Sam that while Gilly and Little Sam can stay and work at Horn Hill, he must continue on to the Citadel and never return. Sam initially bids farewell to Gilly, but then changes his mind, taking Gilly and Little Sam with him to the Citadel, making sure to take Tarly's uh, Valyrian Steel family sword, Heartsbane, along the way. Um, really, really good stuff at Horn Hill. I love the stuff at Horn Hill this yep. week. What, yeah, what about you? You, I think during our messages, you spoke more about Horn Hill than anywhere else, actually. Yeah, it's a real highlight, this. Um, just a, a, like some small things I wanted to get out of the way, some little bits I loved. You know when um, Gilly walks out in the new dress hmm. and she's like like straight as, stiff as a board, like arms down by her side, sort of waddling towards Sam, like... It's a bit hard to walk in this. I love that. <laughs> just just before I get to like the heavy stuff, because there is that dinner scene is horrific. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, I sent you an article about succession and responses to trauma by Emily Vanderworth Vox, which yeah. came to mind when I was watching Sam at dinner being chastised by Randall. Yeah, I, I'm gonna paraphrase it a little bit in relation to this scene, but. I suspect most people know about fight or flight response in moments of stress, but there's also the freeze response and the fawn response. So fawning yeah. is what someone does when they attempt to, you know, placate or calm the threat in question. But the one I want to focus on here is the freeze response, because you look at Sam in this scene when Randall starts to challenge Gilly, and he seems to be kind of like completely frozen in place as if he's trying not to be seen at all. You look at all of these shots, Sam's in the extreme background. He's either staring down at the table or up into the distance. He's looking literally anywhere other than the heated conversation that's just going on a couple of feet away from him. Hmm. And you might even argue that Gilly's had to contend with similar trauma based on her experience with the craster. Jesus, yeah. But, yeah... And, you know, the sense that Gilly has had to endure Craster's abuse for such a long time that her natural instinct is to fight back in order to protect herself. 
Hmm. And she might even have been one of the, you know, the eldest sisters at Craster's Keep. And um, to paraphrase, making herself the biggest, easiest target is born from having to protect her younger sisters from his abuse. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, I guess it's something we, we see quite a lot on the show, like how trauma affects young people and how they carry it with them. And yeah, definitely. They... That's one of the really big themes of the show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, this scene's a pretty horrific example of it. But I liked the sort of tease later on as well, where you think Sam's going to go away, and he, you know, he t- takes a couple of seconds and comes back because he obviously decides, where am I going to find true love again? You know, I can become a maester anytime, but y- you know, you only get one true love. Hmm. So, yeah. Well, I love the fact that it descends from what is ultimately a bit of a comedy setup where it's a bit guess who's coming to dinner at first. Where it's it a bit is, like, yeah, now yeah. whatever you do, don't tell him you're a wildling. Ah, canned <laughs> laughter, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And then just as they get there, there's that adorable little moment where Sam's mother introduces herself to little Sam and he sort of gets very excited and happy and tries to reach out for her. And it's one of those moments that you know that yeah, they can't possibly plan for or script. But when they got it, they were like, oh, how natural and beautiful is that? And so they left that in. Great little touch. Totally agree that Gilly's dress is hysterical because it's like she doesn't belong in that dress. She she belongs no. in the clothes that she's always worn. Maybe something a yeah, bit yeah. nicer, but that's you know Gilly being all like done up and stuff. And like obviously like Hannah Murray who plays Gilly like looks really gorgeous in that. But like it's funny how she how does, well yeah. she plays the fact that she does not belong in that dress. <laughs> she can barely move. Yeah. Um. But then they get to the dinner scene. Um. The the dinner scene is excruciating. It, it, it kind of absolutely it kind of got to the point where like Sam's silence is kind of, or the, well, the silence around the table, the awkward silence, is kind of preferable to when they're talking because it just the talking gets more and more awkward because you know that the more that they talk, the closer they're going to get to revealing Gilly's status um as a as a wildling and then i again i think a lot of people at the time really praised john bradley for his kind of trauma face if you will mm. where it's just this yeah. it's constantly contorting and moving and shifting and it's not it's like he's uncomfortable in his seat and in his body and in his skin um but randall tarley is played by uh, james faulkner um, yeah, I love the fact that he's only in one scene and he's particularly horrible in this scene, but he doesn't feel one note to me. It feels like there's years no, of hard-earned respect. And yes. Because we, we finally meet the guy who threatened to kill Sam unless he joined the Night's Watch. And he is everything that I think he lives up to. He lives up to everything you expect him to be, as far as I'm concerned. I think he's played really, really well. I totally agree. And I think I think the thing is as well, he knew that Gilly was a wildling. I don't think it was this big secret. He's like, oh my God. He knew sort of straight away and you can tell from that, that dead stare that he gives over dinner. He's just mm. st- like staring right through Sam and Gilly. Yeah, waiting and for them to basically... He's, he's, give, he's given them enough rope essentially. 
Yeah, and I feel like that maybe the light-hearted setup is a way of saying, you know, nobody else has a problem with this. It is just Randall, because Randall is, you know, an abusive father. Let's just put it out there. Yeah, oh god, yeah. Um, and Dickon and Tala and Sam's mum, none of them particularly mm. mind about the fact that little Sam might not be Sam's son. That Gilly is a wildling. Like none of them particularly mind or particularly care i think i find it strange though it's something that doesn't quite fit i mean i can believe that randall tarley doesn't like wildlings because everyone hates wildlings that sort of thing we're gonna maybe have to look into randall tarley's history because the tarleys are sort of based in the south Hmm. and the people in the south of westeros don't really have any have any opinions about wildlings it's mostly people in the north so they kind of see wildlings as like uh a very distant issue from miles and miles away that doesn't concern them. And so the hatred that Randall Talley has for Gilly is something I've always been curious about, where that came from. Yeah, I was thinking maybe there's like a war that the Talleys were involved in in the north. That sounds that... about right, yeah. because I'm. You might have yeah. to um, keep me posted on yeah, that. Yeah, I'm going to look into that. That might be uh, some some book history I'm going to need to... Uh, research and i think as well in the context of our episode this is the start of characters using the little things that they have to get ahead and to you know just sort of get themselves nudged up the ladder a little bit further and in this episode it's sam realizing that gilly and little sam are more important to him and that he steals that sword oh yeah and it's just this little thing that he can take to boost his score boost his bonus score a little bit on his top trump card and hopefully it will help him at some point down the future maybe he'll you know go to the citadel and start researching it or something but or maybe he'll hack an enemy down with it at some stage you know he does have a <laughs> he does have a, a a penchant for sort of killing things that he shouldn't be able to kill out of absolutely nowhere that's a then and a white walker down so <laughs> yeah, yeah who knows what comes and next <laughs> And that's it. If Randall does come for him, then he's got a fucking big sword. You know, no problem. I saw you the other day in the audience. How many times have you seen this stupid play? Three times. Did you pay? No. I remember when the players came to my village. I didn't have any money, so I snuck in. Just like you. Saw the painted faces, the costumes, listened to the songs. Cried when the young lovers died in each other's arms. I ran off and joined them the next day. Never looked back. You're very good. My final speech is shit. In Bravos, Arya returns to watch the play featuring Lady Crane. She sneaks backstage during the performance and spikes Lady Crane's rum with the poison. As she attempts to leave, Lady Crane stops her and the pair discuss acting and pretending to be other people and a couple of other things. Uh, after their conversation, Aya though changes her mind and prevents Lady Crane from drinking the rum, believing that the younger actress, Bianca, is the one who paid the faceless men to assassinate her. Uh, this incident is witnessed by the waif, who alerts Jacken to Aya's failure to take out a target, and Aya, knowing that she cannot return to the House of Black and White, retrieves Needle from its secret place Yay. in the harbour and goes into hiding. Well, there you go, Lizzie. 13 episodes later, Needle's back out the rock, as you correctly predicted as soon as you put it in there. 
And that's the end of the podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the run. Yeah, that's it. We'll See you, everyone. Needles out See the you rock. That was all we bye were bye. here for. Bye. Ciao. <laughs> <laughs> um, more good stuff in Bravos this week. I love the play again. Um, love the conversation agree, with yeah. Aya and Lady Crane. I love the fact that yep. the show is no longer committing to the idea that Aya could ever become no one. It's all over. We're just going to have a very <laughs> simple showdown between Aya and the Waif and Jacken as like a third wheel in this conflict and... Maybe it'll all be over soon. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. What notes have you got from Bravos? Um, certainly not as much as last week because I don't want to repeat myself. But I did go, in, you know, I did go into detail about the reenactment of the War of the Five Kings. Just a couple of small notes. I really loved Arya sort of taking glee in Joffrey's death and everybody looking around like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, she like, gets to watch she's it. She's just died. She will have heard about yeah. it and she'll have been like, "Oh, I wish I was there." And now she gets to see it. <laughs> yeah, she was like, "Oh, I wish that was me poisoning him." But again, it's another but, sign that she was just never going to become no one. The more she sees yeah. this play, the more it's like, "I care too much about the characters in it because they're real people that I've met." <laughs> But also, you know when she's watching um, Lady Crane sort of saying goodbye to Joffrey and I don't, I can't tell if she's just taken in by the performance or if she's sort of putting herself, like she's seeing Catelyn as Cersei and, Mm. you know, Rob as Joffrey maybe and thinking, you know, I can't really laugh because that happened to my family as well. Like my... You know, my my oldest brother was killed, and and so it's sort of relating back to her own experience. Whereas I d- it's it's one of those things. It could just as well be that she was quite taken with Lady Crane's performance, and that's why they got talking about acting. And well, I wouldn't say yeah. that it's not both. I I, okay. I would I would argue that it's both of those things. I think both of the observations you've made are correct, which is that as much as it's initially about Lady Crane's performance and the fact that Arya is starting to find it difficult to find it within herself to have what it takes to take out a mark. I mean, she's made the fatal mistake, hasn't she, really, that she's got to know her mark. Um, Yeah, yeah. So that's the one mistake. But then, yeah, the other one is just the sort of... I imagine the the simplicity and sort of like the base emotions of a, a grieving mother whom she knows she had before yeah. uh, before her own mother was uh, taken from her. Um, I think that one thing that does kind of come up from this play is that the crowd is aware that Tyrion came to Essos because he yeah. says, my greatest crime, and now I must flee and sail across the narrow sea to do unto you more treachery. And so... Everybody knows that Tyrion is in Essos, which I find kind of funny because for ages the people in King's Landing had no idea where Tyrion had gone, <laughs> and they were spent yeah. ages looking for him. And it it just so happens that like finally that story, that knowledge has reached out. But by the time people have uh, by the time people were aware of this, Cersei has moved on. She has other issues. <laughs> She's feeling less vengeful about Tyrion and more vengeful about uh, <laughs> the, the the High Sparrow and his dealings. Yeah, I mean, this play specifically dealing with, um, well, the War of the Five Kings and also, I guess, the fall of the Lannister family. Yes. Um, because in they're, the end, they're, that's kind they're of like the story a... it tells, yeah. Yeah, the the Lannister family are a shadow of what they once were, even though they're still in power. 
yeah, so, somehow, uh, via just yeah. via Tommen, really. Um, but this uh, segment of the episode also has the line that makes me... It's one of those lines that I think you could apply to everybody in the episode, which is that um, I do what I can with what I'm given, which is um, what Lady Crane says. And so Aya goes back to do what she can with a needle. She's, you know, she's taken the initiative this time. Lady Crane's doing what she can with the performance. Um, you know, so even Bran, I suppose, like he now has Benjamin and so he can be helped along a little bit. And I think the show's kind of gone over these themes before about like, you know, helping people in need and helping them on that way. Not maybe not all the way, but yeah, giving yeah. them a nudge so that they get there by themselves. Um, and this is another one where Arya kind of does it for herself, but then um Lady Crane, the conversation that they have with each other, that another great line as well, um, do you like pretending to be other people? I, I thought that was pretty yeah. cool. Because what is Aya doing if not acting? Um, but there's just there's two things um, that I did want to say. Is the Waif, again, is making the same mistakes that I is making, which is that she's decided that there's personal stakes in this for her. Because she, she's like, she goes back to Jack and like, um, teacher, teacher, um, Aya's not behaving, um, being all like <laughs> teacher's pet sort of thing. But he, she says, yeah, yeah. you promised me. And it's like, she's been waiting and waiting and waiting to get Aya. And then yeah. even Jack and says, don't let her suffer, which is a bit like he's revealing like the personal he he has personal stakes in this even though he's not supposed to which is what i was talking about with them simplifying the whole plot a little bit where jacken is just jacken now and the waif is just waif there's no complicated face bollocks for like from last season and so i think yeah, it also yeah. shows how much i has changed jacken and how much an effect she's had on him um because even he's thinking something like okay you can but you know go easy on her a little bit since when does a faceless man care about going easy on somebody you just do the job. Well, I mean, because what I took from that was, I don't know why I took this, but I just thought, like, go easy on her or people will start to suspect us. Possibly. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, like um, there's, like yeah. there's a, a secret to what they do that can't be revealed. And I, I don't know, I could, be, I could be way off. But yeah, maybe I do like your interpretation that Arya has had an effect on Jacken as well, and like they had some sort of kinship. Hmm. And uh, how are you sort of expecting this to go down? Arya's gone into hiding now, and the waif is after her. Um. Well, like you say, I'm expecting a sort of showdown between the two, but some sort of inner strength makes or helps Arya pull through. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. That. That wouldn't surprise me if that happened from this point. <laughs> yeah. I speak for King Tommen of House Baratheon, first of his name. The gods don't recognize his authority in this matter. You've already insulted one great house. It won't happen twice. Every last sparrow will die before Marjorie Tyrell walks down that street. To die in the service of the gods would please each and every one of us. We yearn for it. there is no call for it today there will be no walk of atonement 
Okay, so we're going to go to King's Landing and the Twins now, and you'll you'll sort of see why. So in King's Landing, the High Sparrow, along with Tommen, prepares for Marjorie's Walk of Atonement. The High Sparrow allows Tommen to visit Marjorie, who appears to have become a devout follower of the faith and has repented for her sins. Jamie and Mace Tyrell lead the Tyrell army to the Sept of Baylor to stop the Walk of Atonement, but before anything can actually happen, the High Sparrow reveals that no walk is actually going to take place, and instead he reveals Tommen to the crowd, and Tommen announces to everybody that the Crown and the Faith have joined together. And as punishment for taking up arms against the Faith, Jamie Lannister is dismissed from the King's Guard and sent to remove the Blackfish from Riverrun, and at the Twins... Lord Walder Frey hears of the news that Riverrun has been taken as well and commands his sons to take their army to the castle and retrieve it from the Blackfish as well. So before we get to the fact that basically everybody's descending on Riverrun right now, um, Mm -hmm. we'll just go to King's Landing first. Um, First time in over a season that Tommen and Marjorie have been on screen together alone. Um, Can you believe? Because she was arrested in season five, episode six, and he hasn't seen her since. Yep. Um, and I'm in love with the fact that Mace Tyrell takes himself so seriously when no one else does. But what about you? <laughs> oh, bless him. I love that too. I also love that Jamie takes himself extremely seriously too. Like, mm. he doesn't just walk up the steps, he takes his white horse up the steps to confront the High Sparrow. Yeah. Like, not an, not an especially threatening presence. He's this sort of mild but also slightly threatening old man but Mm. yeah this it should have seemed inevitable that Tommen would kind of give in to the High Sparrow to get back Marjorie because you know as much as I'm sure he would want to defend his own family Cersei and Jamie in particular they haven't really given much back to him to to make him do that whereas you know, since they met, him and Marjorie, they've been thick as thieves, essentially. Yeah. And I think, well, obviously, when Marjorie was taken away from him, he went into hiding because he just couldn't cope. So, hmm. um, so yeah, it seemed kind of inevitable, but there was a sense of, oh, Tom, and no, no, <laughs> Tom. And- yeah, there is the feeling that he just hasn't got a clue anymore. That's it. He's, just, just, he's still like a little boy. He's yeah. just lost. Yeah. Um, and you can see why he would be taken in by the High Sparrow because he is that sort of comforting presence. He's that reassuring, you know, hand on the shoulder. But there's, there's a lot of darkness behind that, which you might not necessarily see if you're, if you're older and wiser. Hmm. This is perfect game playing from Mm. the High Sparrow as well, because there's a little clue in this scene as to what's going to happen before you even really get into it, which is the fact that Marjorie's still got all of her hair. That's that's right, yeah. And so there is never any plan. The High Sparrow doesn't change his mind. It's that he stages all of this, knows that he drags the army in, and then he knows that he can dismiss Jamie from the head of the Kingsguard. And send him, and he, he can get him sent away to Riverrun, and all this time he will have been in Tommen's ear. Um, it's a, I like the fact that it doesn't really lead to anything though, because this was one of the main. I think this is the thumbnail for the trailer on YouTube. Actually, the um, the 
the Tyrell army spears facing forward at the Sept of Baylor, and you're like, shit, the Tyrells have descended on King's Landing, what's going on there? Mm. And it doesn't come to anything. It's this strange sort of left turn, which is something that we've not really seen since, like, season four, episode six, funnily enough, where you walk into loads of different situations, and you expect them to go one way or the other, but they kind of go in that third direction where, like, Yara goes to the Dreadfort and it's either Yara wins or Ramsay wins, and in the end, kind of neither of them happen, and then Stannis goes to the Iron Bank and you expect either Stannis to win or Stannis to lose, and again, it's like a slightly left-field option, and Tyrion, you either expect him to be found guilty or be found innocent, and in the end, it's neither. And in this, you kind of expect the Tyrell army to have wipe them out or to for nothing to have happened and in the end it's this weird kind of big defeat without any bloodshed um that ends up happening uh, and again it's another example of characters like the high sparrow using what's at their disposal to kind of get ahead in the game you know the the last moves are kind of um the the final moves of the season are kind of being played here now so that they can set events in motion for the the end game of the season um and like you say at the start at the top of our episode actually like you said um this is where everything is is laid out and where everything is where the final events of the season these are basically the the spring the the point where it all starts and so it's kind of like the water spring uh if you will of all the uh the events that are going to come to a head and I think that this is a good way to kind of start off the back half of the season in King's Landing where they have a big confrontation, but it doesn't really come to anything. And so a lot of people are now left analysing their positions. And one of them is um, Cersei, I suppose, whose response to all this is just to sort of turn to Jamie and go, oh, just take the stupid castle. It's ours. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that left turn away from like what would be an obvious confrontation in a different episode because... I'm now just thinking, is this like one of the few episodes we've had so far where no humans are killed? There's a few white whites at the beginning, right? But aside Ooh. from that, I don't think anyone sheds blood in this episode. Um, no. No, I think that's right. Um, I don't know if it's the first episode where that happens, but... Yeah, I'm tempted to say there's another, but I can't think for the life of me. I will find this out for next week. Yeah. Not next week. For Well, yeah, yeah. during our Succession episode, I will find this out and I'll reveal the answer in our Succession episode. <laughs> cool, great. <laughs> um, one last little thing to note as well is that Jamie, Brienne and the Freys are all heading to Riverrun to meet the Blackfish. And so who's going to get out of the Blackfish what they want? So Brienne wants the Blackfish to give the army to Sansa. Jaime wants the Blackfish to give the castle to the Lannisters. And the Freys want the castle themselves. So it could be an interesting couple of weeks at River Run. Yes, it very well could be. <laughs> and of course, I've uh, mentioned the phrase there, um, Walder Frey has returned. How do you feel about that? Oh, God, I hate this prick. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm glad to see him back because he puts in a good performance, but I hate him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David Bradley's excellent. Um, 
He's magnificent. And in fact, it's not just Walder Frey. It's not just Walder Frey that comes back either. It's uh, Edmure Tully as well, who we've not seen since uh, The Red Wedding. And the show kindly reminds us and says, you've all forgotten whose wedding it was in the first place at The Red Wedding. Hello, Lord Edmure. (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, thank you, Lord Walder, for that excellent bit of exposition there. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Edmure, who, who I assumed was long dead. I mean, I thought the same about the blackfish, so what yeah, do I know? Yeah, true. No, I think Ed Mill's just been collateral at the bottom of a cell for uh, for a little while. So he's been like the Frey Sansa, essentially. Yeah, basically, but the Freys aren't interested enough to follow them all the time, I suppose. Mm. <laughs> Alright then, we will finish up this week in the Dothraki Sea, uh, where, while riding with the Kalasar, Daenerys and Dario discuss the next phase of her plan, and Dario says to Daenerys that maybe she isn't suited to ruling, but suited to conquering instead, and Daenerys then rides ahead uh, of the Kalasar to investigate something unknown, and after a short wait, Dario and the rest of the Kalasar see Daenerys flying overhead on Drogon, and Daenerys lands nearby and gives a big speech, declaring all of the Kalasar to be her blood riders, and then she asks if they will cross the narrow sea with her and help her retake the Seven Kingdoms. Or take the Seven Kingdoms, because she was never queen, but retake it for the Targaryens anyway. Um, Cool line in this that I think reveals a lot about where Daenerys is up to at this point, and about whether she can become more than just someone who sweeps into cities and takes it. It's someone who's who can grow into a ruler. Mm. And Dario disagrees up to this point, but he could be wrong. Um... It's a nice little character moment before you get the big, the big rousing speech. What, what, what do you make of the the Dothraki Sea stuff? I don't know. It's all right. It's another one of these big Daenerys moments that leaves me feeling kind of empty, mm. and I don't really have anything to say about it because it's just like it doesn't provide me any new information about Daenerys. It's more of just the same of. We know she's eventually going to try and conquer King's Landing, but it's... Um, it's plot yeah, stuff. I'm struggling. It's just plot, it stuff. plot stuff. It's just basically Daenerys is planning to come to Westeros now. Like, that's yeah. that's basically all you really need to get out of the scene. Um, but the one thing that I like about its placement in the episode is that it comes right at the end where we see all these movements... In Westeros, these these little movements, like in um, in King's Landing and at Horn Hill, and even like you know beyond the Wall, um, where Bran is probably going to try and head south again now. Yeah. Um, and then right at the end of it all, when you've watched all these movements in, especially King's Landing, it's like, and this is over the narrow sea, and all of the squabbling. I think that's why they have the brand stuff first and the Daenerys stuff last, which is that all of this squabbling doesn't really mean squat when dragons and white mm. walkers get involved. 
and that's, that's a good point. It's, yeah. I, so yeah, it's one of those where like it's it's mainly just plot stuff, which is that okay, Daenerys is done with Essos now. She's gonna try and take the Dothraki over the Black Salt Sea, as she calls it. But the one thing that I do find hmm. interesting in this scene, apart from the fact that it's another episode that ends with a dragon roaring, as we all know, I, I love the uh, the end of episodes that cut to black on Drogon giving it a good old rah. Um, yes. Is that Daenerys almost word for word recounts Carl Drogo's speech from season one? I didn't actually notice that. Well, I, I don't suppose you would because it's just one of those where like Carl Drogo gave this speech exactly five seasons ago, and like mm. remembering all of that, no point. But like, there's a couple of lines taken out. Like, obviously, Daenerys isn't intending to rape and pillage in the way that Khal Drogo was, because Khal Drogo's like, I will rape their women and enslave their children and I'll do all of this. And like, she da- Daenerys isn't planning to rape or enslave anyone, but she is still planning to, you know, knock down the stone houses and take Westeros and whatever she says. And it's just interesting that she's moved, if not, she's not uh, obviously Khal Drogo at heart, but she is a Khal to... The 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 Kalasar, they they see her in the same way that they would have seen Drogo, and it's a, just an interesting point of growth. Well, it's like it's where it's more it's less about where Daenerys is moving as a character, and it's more like where she's up to as a character. And it seems that she's yeah. where Khal Drogo was five seasons ago, and it means that she is clearly not who she was five seasons ago. Yeah, okay, I can. I mean, I can take that, and I think also it does make sense in. This episode focuses a lot on the, like where people have come from, M- mainly families, but you know the the origins of where these characters have have come from and where they are now. Mm. And yeah, I suppose that would make sense of it's Daenerys's progress and it's Daenerys realizing that she she can't just stay where she is; she has to move on. It doesn't make it a particularly invigorating scene beyond that, though. It is just kind of stapled onto the end of the episode because they've got a dragon roaring. I imagine it's just one of those where, like, they can't, you can't put this in the middle of the episode because I don't think you can put Drogon's big face um, no, no. up at front of the camera it. and then, you know, not yeah. cut to black. But I've got to say as well, the, the CGI work is awesome. Like, the the detail of Drogon's mouth is just, like, it feels so physical and so yeah. real looking at it and like the the tongue and like the little jets at the side of his mouth where i presume fire comes out from and the noise and the sound design and oh yeah it's um that is quite stirring but the stuff before it is you know it's fine it's Daenerys kind of taking official command of the Dothraki as opposed to implied command which is what it was two episodes ago Daenerys yeah. hasn't moved forward much since a couple of episodes ago, I don't think. But that's because her no. two scenes have been quite... She's had a quick scene with Jorah and then a quick scene with Drogon. And that's that's about it. Well, it's been a bit weird with Daenerys recently because I feel like she had that um, she had that big scene where she, you know, took the Carls to a fiery death. But... Yeah, you go from that to like, like you say, a quiet farewell to Jorah, and then a rousing speech to the Dothraki. It's like there's no sort of through line between those three. I don't think. I feel like they're in a weird order. Yeah, Daenerys is very plot based this season. I think 
in yeah, ways that maybe yeah. other characters are more well their stories are more character based at the moment or they're relying a bit like brand stuff where it's like relying quite a lot on mythology and stuff but you know Daenerys's stuff I think this season it's about maybe tying up loose ends for Daenerys and now she's got I control suppose. of the Dothraki it's there's a loose end tied up I suppose uh, and there may True. be more loose ends tied up in the future. Um, if you have nothing more to say, I guess we can move on to our uh, weekly categories that we always we always do. No, I, th- I think I've, I think we've covered everything. It's not it's not an episode high on talking points. I don't think it's solid, but yeah, no, I, I, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I think so. It's um, and also only five locations this week. Yeah, compared um, to yeah. like the last couple where I've been like eight or nine. Yeah, I mean technically six because uh, of the twins, but I rolled that in with King's Landing. Yeah, I mean that yeah. that's just a, a whistle top. So line of the episode, please, Lizzie. Um, I'm gonna go for one from Gilly who says, "I'm not angry at you. I'm angry that horrible people can treat good people that way and get away with it." Cool. All right. Great then. line. Yeah. Um, who's your loser? this week i don't think i need three guesses to work this out yeah no contest randall yeah randall tarley's uh pretty mm-hmm. <laughs> steaming away with that one i think i don't think anyone was going to catch him this week uh so no. who's your winner uh my winner of the week is gilly yeah i think that's yeah, yeah i think you know if you're gonna have a villain of the week you need a hero to stand up to him and gilly was that hero absolutely all right then, everyone, uh, just letting you know that over Christmas we're going to take a little break, uh, but we are going to have a bonus episode uh, about all about season three of Succession, which finished uh, yes. last week. Yeah, um, me and Lizzie are going to be talking about that because me and Lizzie have been watching Succession for a couple of seasons now, I think. Um, were you caught up in time for season two when it first came out, or have you watched it um, since then? No, I, I watched it all at the beginning of lockdown. Ah, uh, yeah, same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. the world gets shut down outside, so we turn to succession. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, so we'll do a bonus episode about that somewhere between sort of Christmas and New Year, and then after the New Year, we'll be back with Season 6, Episode 7, entitled uh, The Broken Man. Uh, so I wonder who the broken man is and how broken Ooh. he possibly is. <laughs> We'll see you on the other side of Christmas, everyone. Um, have a really nice Christmas, uh, as nice as you c- can possibly make it, and uh, yeah. we'll, we'll be back in 2022. <laughs> <laughs>